The following podcast is for information purposes only and is not suitable for retail investors. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Chart of the Week podcast. This week our chart is showing China's trade balance, that is to say the level of their exports minus the level of their imports since August 2015. China is the largest exporter in the world by value and has historically operated at a trade surplus. During the pandemic, an aggressive zero COVID policy saw the complete lockdown of many of China's most productive cities, such as Shanghai and Shenzhen. This led to a collapse in export levels and the country fell into a trade deficit. Since then, export levels have recovered strongly, but with the Chinese government still pursuing its zero COVID policy, and with major production hubs moving in and out of lockdowns, the trade balance has fluctuated wildly. However, the most recent data release in July saw the level of exports surprise significantly to the upside, with China's trade balance rising to an all-time high of 101.3 billion US dollars, breaking its own record set in June. I'm joined by Rob White to discuss this. Tell me, Rob, why is exactly is this important and how much emphasis should we put on trade data? Uh, thanks for that introduction, Ben, and uh, thanks for the invite again to, to speak on this interesting topic. I think to start with, it's, it's interesting to put the issue in a political context. And if you cast your mind back right to the 2nd of March 2018, uh, so th- those were the days before COVID um, and when we had a reality TV star occupying the White House. Again, they seem, seem like a long time ago now. But, um, but, but back then, President Trump was waging an economic war on China, uh, specifically targeting the trade deficit between the two countries. And, and that was a particular bone of contention. Now, on that day, um, back on the, on the 2nd of March, uh, he made the infamous, infamous comment uh, that trade wars are good and easy to win. And throughout his time in office, uh, the US imposed a number of tariffs on critical industries such as semis and, and solar panels, many of which remain today. You know, today, actually, tariffs remain on about uh, $370 billion or so of, of U.S. imports. So, you know, this is, uh, this is a kind of bipartisan issue. Uh, China, of course, re- retaliated during this time and, and sparked those, those trade wars that we saw, which really, you know, defined the investment landscape of 2018. Uh, and it retaliated with its own tariffs on goods such as soybeans, uh, where China, China is the largest importer in the world. Uh, and thus could exert some pressure on the U.S. agricultural sector. Uh, despite this, the trend that you, you show in the chart, Ben, is, is clearly upwards uh, and clearly rising in dollar terms, despite this political will and, and, and the desire to kind of reduce uh, trading dependence. Uh, but there is plenty of volatility due to the pandemic, uh, which you mentioned previously. Uh, this broad upward move, however, does tell you how hard it is to challenge established macroeconomic trends, entrenched consumer preferences and the delicate balance of supply chains in our global economy today. You know, it's not something that you can change with short term tax changes and and all these things are driving the the big deficit that the US has uh, with China. And and that feeds a lot into China's overall numbers, which uh, which we've shown in the chart. Uh, So the political aspect of the US China relationship um, more broadly has taken on on, uh, new importance uh, recently. And that's in the aftermath of uh, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And of course, that was followed by some uh, pretty, a pretty aggressive, aggressive response from China. And that's through missile launches and, and live fire drills. And again, this is a kind of pattern of, of um, 
well, the pattern of responses that China's uh, that China's engaged in historically as well when when similar issues have arisen. So, of course, China is uh, sorry, Taiwan is seen as a breakaway territory by the Chinese, and um, increasingly, as uh, Xi Jinping has um, has taken more power within the CCP uh, within the CCP. Um, they have been really consistent in their one China policy and, and um, with, with regards to Taiwan, but also uh, with regards to Hong Kong, too. And we've seen how that's been applied and how China really is kind of taking up um, it, its what's seen as its rightful position on the world stage after uh, kind of playing second fiddle to to um, to the West for, for, for many years. Taiwan is, however, a completely different kettle of fish to Hong Kong, um, of course, due to its size and geographical location. Um, and so you know, I, this is going to be a story that's going to be uh, uh, around for, for years, if not decades. Um, and, you know, there are risks there. But um, but again, uh, we are not expecting any kind of uh, big escalation or, or military um, invasion or, or anything on the scale of, of kind of Ukraine and Russia um, anytime soon. Uh, so while, while the trade balance doesn't tie directly into the Taiwan issue, it does indicate a few things. Uh, so, so firstly, the large trade surplus that China has um, has been an indi indicator of spectacularly growing um, or a spectacularly growing economy. Since joining the World Trade Organization in 2001, China has seen phenomenal growth uh, in exports. And of course, that boosts G GDP growth, uh, employment and living standards as well within the economy. So, and this has been a driving force for a really a, a miraculous change in circumstances for hundreds of millions of Chinese workers. And you've seen this as, as urbanization rates have climbed sharply um, and people have just been better off through working in more, in more productive jobs. Uh, so this is in contrast to the US, of course, which is a, a very different economy. And, you know, while still growing at a respectable amount for a, de a developed economy, has been running with a persistent deficit. So currently that's at about $80 billion uh, versus China's surplus of uh, hundred plus billion, um, as you mentioned. Uh, now, now China is certainly closing the gap on the US, uh, economically speaking. The country does have larger GDP in purchasing power parity terms today, uh, but it's still second in, in dollar terms uh, for the time being. Um, and when you look at kind of broader measures of, of influence and power, you know, typically you look at uh, military capabilities, you know, they're certainly investing heavily there as well. Um, and uh, again, depending on, on, on how you look at things, uh, certainly kind of at least competing with the US in, in many areas. Um, however, uh, it is somewhat of an oversimplification to, to just focus on the trade balance alone. Um, and here you can make comparisons with the US, uh, which again is a developed economy, but where growth is largely driven by domestic consumption. And running large deficits, uh, which we, we talked about, uh, is a symptom of that. So China, by contrast, has been growing based off investment. Uh, and this is a difficult habit to, to break, um, as it's been kind of established over, over many decades. And, and the key thing is, as any economy develops, um, and, and particularly China, you know, you're looking to rebalance the economy more from um, or away from investments and towards domestic consumption. And, and the Chinese Communist Party know this, that, you know, they're students of history, they're well aware of this, of this, um, this trend that's needed. Uh, and they've been trying to, trying to foster this through internal changes, and even talking about different types of growth. So they've been, they've been referring to this, uh, you know, domestic demand growth as kind of high quality growth. 
and they've been referring to kind of you know debt driven infrastructure spending um you know investment spending as kind of low quality growth which signifies um its history uh, but but clearly they're looking to move to a kind of more uh, sophisticated uh, model of growth going forward and you know this is this is an interesting time it's the first time we've really seen them make this distinction um, and it's understandable when you look at the numbers so i think investment in china is about 40 45 percent of gdp and you look at the rest of the world and, and, and the average kind of for, for developed markets is, is typically around kind of 15 to 25 percent range something like that but that, that's a significant gap and really because of this that the trade balance can, can therefore be seen as somewhat of a negative thing too so the lack of imports which is part of that that trade balance uh, is a sign of weak chinese domestic demand and that means that future growth could be hard to achieve so we see this presently as uh, china china's economy grew by two and a half percent in the first half of the year and again that may seem impressive by global standards but it's well below the government's target of five and a half percent annually um, and, you know, it's well below what they have been able to achieve, you know, since uh, since joining the WTO. But ultimately, you know, China will have to adapt its economy to this new model, uh, as uh, previous economies have done, uh, particularly, you know, Korea is a good example. And it's just a kind of a process of mature development that, that, that economies have to go to as they're, they're making that transition from an emerging market to a developed market. And that's something that, that's, that's, that can be difficult to do. You know, this is you know probably the most important thing that's that's going to drive um, the, the Chinese economy and, and, and prospective returns as well for investors going forward. And the trade balance is probably more of a symptom of this rather than anything else. You know, the the alternative uh, of kind of not pursuing this model is is continually continually falling back on on old habits of stimulating through through debt in in, in uh, the real estate sector, for example. Um, and we've seen the dangers of that, you know, with Evergrande and the ongoing kind of well collapse of that center, that 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 sector. Um, again, that's that's very much a kind of uh, uh, an economic uh, story that's that's ongoing. Uh, but again, if if this is something that they pursue longer term, term uh, eventually productivity will drop, uh, and some of this uh, this 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 spending on infrastructure and and and, uh, and investment uh, will not be productive because they don't have that domestic demand driver that's kicking in. So again, it's it's really it's something that's really important to, to monitor, and it's uh, um, it's a long-term trend that uh, we we hope to be seeing uh, over the next years and decades. So I'd like to, to finish on an opt optimistic note. Uh, so I mean, I, th I think it's worth pointing out that China and and the CCP have proved, you know, remarkably adept at, at spurring growth and, and solving difficult structural issues um, through some creative policy making. Now, it's dangerous to, to make a big bet against them um, and you know of course there have been policy missteps over the last couple of years um, and it does seem Xi is, uh, is, is certainly centralizing power more than most uh, but we still think the CCP is um, uh, obviously cares a lot about the economy um, and it's part of their legitimacy as a kind of authoritarian government and they're going to foster this transition to a more developed economy to the best of its ability going forward. And as investors, uh, there are plenty of pr pretty attractive valuation opportunities out there at present. Uh, at present, and, and that's come about through some of the, uh, I think, some of the policy missteps and, and the volatility that we've seen certainly over the last couple of years, and of course uh, due to the the COVID lockdowns, which are, again st are still very much an unknown. 
Uh, but again, there are good opportunities for specialist investors who are on the ground and who are able to have better intuitions about the future direction of the policy. And we're certainly looking to add, you know, these types of managers across our portfolios. So, um, so I think I'll, I'll leave it there. And hopefully that was a, 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 a full and clear answer, um, certainly to the best of my ability, Ben. I think we've um, lost Ben, but that was really useful. Thanks, Rob. And we'll speak to you next week. That's great. Thanks very much, Gabby. Thanks, Ben. For professional advisors only, the views expressed are those of Momentum Global Investment Management at the time of recording and are subject to change without notice. Momentum Global Investment Management has used all reasonable efforts to ensure the accuracy of the information contained in this communication, but we cannot guarantee the reliability, completeness or accuracy of the content. This podcast is for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell. Momentum Global Investment Management, company registration number 37330094 has its registered office at the Rex Building, 62 Queen Street, London, EC4R1EB. Momentum Global Investment Management Limited is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom, registration number 232357, and is exempt from the requirements of Section 71 of the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act 37 of 2002 in South Africa. In terms of the FSCA FAIS Notice 141 of 2021, published on the 15th of December 2021. For complaint relating to Momentum Global Investment Management's financial services, please contact distribution services at momentum.co.uk. Your capital is at risk.